0: Good morning. How's everyone? Good. This is a fun time of year, huh? Everyone's starting to come back from vacation. You're like, I feel like I haven't seen you in a year, huh? It's fun. So it's good to see everyone. My name's Eric, if you don't know me. Uh, We'd love to connect with you and help you connect with our church uh, out in the courtyard. We'd love to get you some information, give you a gift. Uh, So just be aware of that if we can help connect you to our church family. Uh, Just quick, uh, write it down, keep it on your calendar. Uh, August 28th, we're going to have a church family business meeting and just kind of update what's going on in the church. And that'll be August 28th, 1130, lunch included in the activity center or the B building. That's the building across the way. Um, The documents and agenda will be uh, available to the church family starting the 10th. You could get it in the church office or it'll be in the lobby. So mark your calendar on the 28th. And uh, we'll have an update and a business meeting for you there. Uh, this morning, I believe we have guests with us in here. Uh, we have Stephen Maori and we have Isaiah over here. Here we go. So let's give them a great welcome. Yes, yes. Pastor Stephen here, standing, and Pastor Isaiah. They are with uh, ICM. Uh, that's uh, a ministry we partner with to help train pastors all throughout Africa. Uh, Pastor Stephen in Kenya and Isaiah. Uh, in Burundi and so what, what we try to do is help them train pastors to go uh, and, and put a church where there's not a church and so that's a very hard thing to do in Africa for uh, for the men to have money to be trained uh, so that they can love and teach their people so we help them get trained uh, we help them with curriculum um, we help them build buildings and classrooms and all those things. so if you want to partner with them or talk further with them they'll be out in the courtyard. And you can ask questions and uh, different ways you can get updates on what they're doing. And so uh, we're excited. And if you haven't caught this at LBC, we really believe in, in, you know, that we are to reach the nations. But it's through the church um, that you see churches planning churches in the New Testament. And it's God's plan uh, to save his people through the church, the preaching of his word, uh, the preaching of the cross through his word. Uh, through the church. And so that's that's one of the reasons I love working with those guys, is they're pastors trying to help raise future pastors to plant churches. So all that fun stuff. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll hop into Isaiah chapter 53. Dear Jesus, we thank you uh, for this morning. We have a beautiful text uh, that I just, I can tell, cannot do it justice. That is, is so beautiful. And it's my deep prayer that uh, these words would just be words we we read often. I I think they're often forgotten or easily forgotten or neglected, however you want to say that. And so it's my prayer that this would just maybe be a a day in our lives where we write down Isaiah 53 and and we're reminded to revisit it over and over and over and over again because it sets things so clearly. And so it's my deep prayer uh, that Isaiah 53 would be imprinted on our hearts In a way that lasts forever. And it's my prayer that your words would speak and not mine. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, so this is um, for all of you people who care about nerdy details. Here's some nerdy details for you, okay? And it doesn't mean you get to check out if you don't care. Otherwise, you'll miss some fun stuff. You guys can laugh. You're going to have to loosen up, okay? Heavy text this morning, all right? So we need some comedic laugh here and there. I'm not funny, but it helps when you guys laugh, okay? So what we tried to do is our goal here is to start the book of Matthew, September 11th. And what I've tried to do is met with the pastors and talked is to lay a background of all the things you need to read Matthew and for Matthew to make sense. Matthew is one of the harder gospels to understand with a lot of the parables and some of the language and the Jewish thinking. So that's partly why we did 1 Samuel 1st, to understand the idea of king the story of King Saul, King David, that background, then this is what we're going to call like a transition series where we're looking at the promised king. Uh, Who does the Old Testament speak of the king that will come? So that way when you get to Matthew, some of these themes and and these uh, storyline is coming out makes more sense. And so the Bible will make more sense if you catch what we're trying to strategically do with you and for you. You with me? Okay, so these are uh, so this text is going to have more of a bend towards preparation towards Matthew, and so if you hear that a lot, and it's also going to draw back on First Samuel. So important to see that. So three truths or three facts you need to understand the promised King. We're going to look at no majesty he bore our griefs and uh, the will of the Lord. So to kind of understand Isaiah a little bit here, you have. Israel, right, and Isaiah's a prophet, and he's located with Judah, and they've had some success throughout uh, this reign, and they've had some victory over the Assyrians, um, but they're becoming scared that Assyria's taking over more and more and more land, and so Isaiah comforts them in some of the uh, chapters that that they will prosper. He warns them of the Babylonians, and then there's two things he does in this. One, he tells them in Isaiah 11, hey, there will be a future kingdom where the Messiah will come, he will rule, he will reign, all things will be at peace, all things will be in order. Okay, so he's trying to comfort them that there will be a day. When you see the phrases, in that day, uh, it's talking about that day, right? The final day. So that comfort is there. This, 53, talks about the prophecy of that there will be someone to come and take away the sins of the world. So this takes us back to right? Genesis 3, that they sin, they've fallen, and God tells them that the seed of the woman will come a man, and he will crush the head of the serpent. And so this is that prophecy moving out, that the sins will be paid for, that that will be conquered. And so if, if you're not reading Isaiah carefully, you really do see both pieces. But when you get to Matthew, what are they really focused on? They're focused on a physical king. They're under Roman captivity. They want a physical king. Not much has changed from Israel in 1 Samuel. Is this true? They want a physical king. They want to dominate. They want to rule. They want to reign. And so I think what's very important for us is that I think sometimes, I don't know if you guys do this, but when I read Matthew or a Gospel, I'm like, how are these guys so dumb? Like, he's the Messiah, right? Like, isn't it obvious? And, and it's not that they're dumb. It's, it's that they're expecting the first, a different prophecy. They're expecting, read Isaiah 11. It's clear. It's a king. He's coming. He's going to rule. It's a physical throne. All the things. And, and it's, it's not that they, they totally didn't read Isaiah, but it's that, and I think we have the same problem. We want external, external materials to solve internal problems. That, that's, in essence, the heart of Israel. It's the heart of the garden it is we have everything we need in God. And we say, but I really need that. That'll make me whole. And God's like, I'll be your king. And they're like, yeah, that's great, but we need one of us. And for somehow we, we think external either activities or material or, or things in external nature will solve our internal problems. It's as if we think if our nation dominates, then our God must be right. And that's kind of what you see with Israel. So this text starts off very clear. Verse two, let's, let's hop in now. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root of dry ground. He had no form and no majesty that we would look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. So it's basically getting at this guy's not going to look amazing. Now that we've read First Samuel, doesn't that kind of strike some images with you? Because God was without form. They didn't want him to be their king. They wanted something physical. And what did we learn about Saul? He was tall, strong, and handsome, but not that smart, right? Like, But that's what he's described, isn't he? And David was not tall and, you know, uh, have military might, but he was good looking, wasn't he? And so this is that clue. Hey, God's going to provide in a way that doesn't make sense to you. Saul looked the part. You liked it. It failed. David looked more the part. he was great, but ultimately he didn't succeed in being you know their mediator. He wasn't perfect. He couldn't fulfill that charge. can't be the high priest, the can't be the payment for our sins. So when you look at that, there's always you see God all throughout the Old Testament. doesn't he use um, ordinary means in extraordinary ways? This is part of the way the Lord works. And so if you're missing that, you see Jesus born in a manger. You're like, how is this the Messiah? Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, but this is part of Israel over and over again. If it doesn't have an external beauty or majesty, they somehow don't think God can use it. Like It doesn't fit their formula for the way God works. But all from the beginning, God's using people. Look at Jericho. Look at all the all of the miracles, Old Testament, he does it through weird ways. Marching around cities, banging pots and pans, guys drinking water with their left hand versus the right hand. Drinking it like a dog versus, right? Weird things, true? And God is, from the beginning, he's made it clear that he's doing the work and not us. So this tells us, hey, the Savior, he's going to come. He's not going to look the way you would think he would look. And he's not going to be anything that makes you go, wow. And so if you were to think through that ourselves is, what would it take for us to to, to feel like, wow, that guy's going to save me? Because you have a look, don't you? I know when I get up, you guys are like, I'm not too sure about that, right? And then we start going through the Bible and you're like, oh, okay, right? But everyone kind of has a look. And you're saying that Jesus isn't going to pass the eyeball test. And I think if, if we really think through it, you know, we have a version of Jesus that he doesn't live up to all the time, don't we? There's a version of Jesus where like, man, I wish Jesus was more, you know, fill in your blank. I mean, if we're being really honest, he was a little bit more like a genie. Came out of a nice little bottle, those of you who are old enough to know that movie, right? So he comes out and he grants us our wishes. It's like, man, I'd really like that. Or maybe he looked more like a butler, a chauffeur. You know, think of all the things people have said over the years. I would believe in Jesus if. That if tends to be something like if there wasn't evil in the world, you know maybe if there was more of a social justice bend, if there weren't uh, pain in their life, if there wasn't suffering, to a degree we all kind of wish Jesus was more like this. And so when you walk through the very beginning, it's like look, you, the physical aspiration or the physical. Uh, nature of Jesus has nothing to do with what he's going to do, which is to pay for our sins. And so if if you don't get it caught in your head that external remedies don't fix internal problems, you're going to fall right into what the Jews fell into. They missed Jesus altogether. Why? Because they're looking for an external king. And we're in the same way. We look for external solutions. I mean, it's, here's something to think about. If Russia comes and conquers America, don't freak out, you more people, right? Or, or China, take your pick. That doesn't change the fact that Christ is on his throne. Like, do we see that? And somehow we've attached our, our kind of country's ability to sustain itself to, to, the, to the ability of God to rule. Whatever happens here doesn't change God's creator and Christ as savior. And somehow with Israel, they they, they connected those two. He can only be savior if he's on a throne. And it's like, no, you're missing it. You don't need to, to have this perfect king and kingdom and rule the other nations. You need to have your sins paid for. Isn't that the bigger problem? Where you are going for eternity is a lot bigger than who's the president or the governor or the mayor for the next four years, isn't it? Where you spend eternity is a lot bigger than who's in jail and who's not in jail. How much you pay for a ticket, how much the housing market is. And so this vein runs through even to us that we look at external circumstances to kind of shape our picture of God, to shape our picture of our Savior. If the, if the economy is great, then Christ is great. The president's terrible, then Christ is terrible. It's a little bit of a simplification, but do you see that? Okay. And so what we want to do is to, to not miss Jesus because we're so busy measuring his ability to rule and reign through external measurements. Okay. so he sets it up. It's like, look, this, this Messiah, this King, the Savior, he's not going to have any majesty to him. He's not going to look the way you want him to look. And he's not going to act the way you want him to act. But nonetheless, he is going to, now let's walk through this, take away our sins, bear our sins, bear our griefs. It says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him and stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. So here's kind of where I think the disconnect is. So we we take an external measurement, right? We want the tall, handsome, strong, powerful. They don't see that in Jesus. But maybe another way to think is why were they so focused externally? It's because they thought they had everything internally figured out. If you're the Jews, they don't really think they need a Savior. You you can see this by the way they act. They have the law. They uphold the law. Everything on the outside looks good. This is why Jesus tells them, you're like whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, dead on the inside. And so if if you miss this idea that you need a Savior, then of course you're going to miss Jesus in the New Testament. If you think you can be morally good enough that God would allow you to be in a relationship with him, then Jesus becomes irrelevant and not necessary. Is that true? Yeah? yeah, I don't know. It is true. The problem is, I think we don't realize we act the same way. There's not this desperate need that like, man, I need a Savior. I'm so sinful, I can't even be with God because he's holy and perfect. I think that the general consensus is I'm not that bad or I don't feel like I'm bad or I feel like other people are a lot worse. And as if God looks down and he's measuring us by who the really bad ones are and who the kind of bad ones are, and he's kind of got this line, and and once you didn't pray 10 times or you didn't give $200 instead of $201, you, you get moved to the back of the line. You know what I mean? And, and somehow our measuring stick just aligns perfectly with God's. And so all Jesus really there is our co-partner to kind of help us be the better versions of ourself. It's not much different than what you're seeing then. Like, they're like hey, I, I measure this. Look at how good I am. Look at how many laws I keep. So when Jesus comes onto the scene and John the Baptist is like, look, behold the lamb to take away the sins of the world. They're like, yeah, we're not really that interested in that. Well, why? Because they don't really see the need. A quote I came across from Thomas Watson says, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. If you don't think you're a great sinner, then Isaiah 53 will do nothing for you. You're going to read it and you're like, yeah, cool. How does that help me now? If you miss sin, you, you miss the gospel, you miss Jesus, you miss the whole point of Christianity. The gospel, good news, means there's bad news. Bad news is we're sinful and we can't make it right with God. There's nothing we can do. We can't work hard enough. We can't be good enough. You read Isaiah 53, it's good news. Why? It's because it's saying that he's going to send a servant to do what we can't, to take on our sins. And so a question to kind of ask yourself is, how sinful do I see myself? See, and this is what the problem. People are allegorizing these passages. They're making metaphors that Jesus doesn't really bear the wrath of God on the cross. And when you do that, you're, making, you're saying that, that there wasn't sin that needed to be paid for. It was that Jesus needed to show us what it looked like to be obedient unto death. Can you read this passage and conclude that there's not a payment for sin? It's not rocket science, people. Look, he was smitten by who in verse 4? He was smitten by who? By God. God punishes him. Am I making that up? No. Five. Pierced for whose transgressions? Our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Do you see a payment? Do you see a penalty? Okay. If you're, if you're struggling to, to carry the weight of this Put your name in that place. And imagine if you were smitten by God, if you were pierced, if you were crushed, if you were chastised by the God Almighty Himself. It's not a fun passage to read when you read yourself through it, is it? See, the point is that's supposed to be us. But we're not good enough to make that payment. We can't. But Christ. Can, he was perfect. And so when it comes to paid for our sin, the more we diminish our sinfulness, the more it's like, I could have done what he did. I could have went to the cross and paid for it myself. And let's flesh this out a little bit. Matthew 8:17 says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and he bore our disease is he talking about someone having, like, cancer? Is that what we think that he's getting at in Matthew? It's not a trick question. No, right? Isn't he talking about sin? But we don't use this kind of language, that sin is like a disease. We, we've, we've kind of equated sin to, you know what, we're all some type of victim, right? We're either a victim from our parents we're victim from the way we were raised, the things we didn't have, the way society is structured, and all we really need is to have opportunity to overcome the oppression or the circumstance that have caused us grief, pain, or to act in a bad way. Now, I don't want to minimize what anyone's gone through. I mean, I came from an abusive home, but none of that gives me an excuse to be a jerk. Is that true? Right. It's really like, that's right. I preach it. But that applies to you guys, too. Right. Like, it, no, it really does. But that's what we kind of we excuse our sin and based on our circumstances. When we do that, it's like, well, I'm really not that bad. Look at how I was raised. Look at what I was taught. Look at the environment I was in. Well, if we're not that bad, then what Jesus did isn't that great. Do you see the correlation? You see the correlation. You have to. Because this is the problem in Matthew. They don't really think they need a Savior. Saved from what? The law. They, abide, they, they they meet the commandments. They meet the demands. But what this is saying, he's like, no. Your sin, my sin, he's going to take it. He's going to bear it. And he's not going to just take nails in the hand, physical. He's going to be afflicted by God. His anger, his wrath is going to be poured out on his son. And he's saying that he knew no sin. And why? Look at verse 5. That brought peace. We're a hostile enemy towards God unless our sins paid for. We don't think of ourselves as enemies of God, do we? Read Ephesians. It's either a child of wrath or a child of God. Either as child, you're at war with him. Another quote I came across, it says, as long as anyone believes he can provide for his own atonement, he won't understand his need for the Savior and won't therefore search the Scriptures. Okay, here's kind of maybe an analogy I could give you guys. Did you guys ever notice you were the perfect parent until you had kids? Did you ever notice that, right? You'd see other people like restaurants with their kids. You're like, oh my gosh, I'll never let my kids do that, right? And then you have kids and you're like, run around, I don't care, I just want to eat, I don't care who you bother, I don't care what you break, I just want to get to my food, right? And then you're there, all of a sudden you're different. But you're so much better, right? The things you'd never do as a parent, right? And then pigtails and blue eyes show up and you're like, take whatever you want, right? Like you were really strong until, right, until you actually have kids. Well, if, if you think of it this way, if you're a Jew, you think you're perfect until you meet Jesus. And telling me, Jesus comes onto the scene and he's like, no, no, you guys got it all wrong. You can heal on the Sabbath. You're supposed to talk to the sinners. You go to Samaria. You go to the tax collector. You go to the prostitute and you offer them salvation. You're supposed to go to the nations. Jesus shows them, no, this is what it really looks like to be sinless. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes onto the scene and everything becomes crystal clear. I am nothing like Jesus. All of a sudden, you're you're seeing how he acts, how he reacts, the majesty due to him as the son of God that he takes not. And you see the way he lives, and it's like, oh, wow, we had no clue. If you miss the gap between Christ's perfection and our sinfulness, the work of the cross gets diminished and diminished and diminished. And it's as if we could fulfill Isaiah 53, Jesus really isn't a king. He's kind of a co-author. We're we're really good, but not perfect. And and Jesus kind of fills in the gaps. Or you're dead in sin, bearing the wrath of God. And Jesus says, I will take your place and bear that wrath. See, we don't have the law currently. We don't look at that and say, look, I'm obeying the law. But we do kind of have these weird measurements that society tells us, right? Like the UBU comments, live your best life, whatever whatever works best for you, works best for me, leave me alone. And it's kind of like this internal measurement that as long as you think you're good, you're good. How do you think that works if you're God? You just create a bunch of people and if they think they get to go to heaven, they get to go to heaven. Does that make sense to anyone? I hope not. If you do, well, we have a few therapists in here. But we need help and the Bible. Like, you need both. That's just not rational. It makes no sense that everyone can make up their own rules and everybody's rights. It, it takes away the whole idea that there's such a thing as sin, that God's holy, that, that there is a, such a thing as justice. It's like, no, God creates us and he says, in order to be a relationship with me, you have to be like me. You're not. You sin. You can't be in a relationship with me unless you've atoned for the, the sin, the consequences you've done, my son will do that. He will pay for you. And through him, this is we're jumping here to the end a little bit, but that's what it means. He makes intercession for the transgressors. He's like, I will communicate with you through my son who paid for you. You can be adopted into that family. And so when we think through ourselves. Just because we're not as bad as the guy to the right or the one to the left, and I get it. It's comforting knowing you could be a worse parent or you could be a worse kid. You could be a worse employee. I get that. You always kind of you don't want to be the worst, but you don't want to be the best. You kind of want to be right in the middle, so you blend in. Right? Everyone makes fun of the goody-goody and nobody likes the rebel. So you want to be in the middle. Uh, But the reality is everyone falls short. And without Christ, we can't make up that gap. And so if we don't see ourselves as totally unable to meet the requirements of God, then then we don't read Isaiah 53 and see that what he did, we could never do. And there's not this aching of gratefulness that Christ does what we can't. And it's not that that we're semi-broken and we just need God to be our therapist to kind of help us work our way through life to be the best versions of ourselves. Christ goes to the cross so that we, we wouldn't be ourselves and that we would be like him. Do we see that? Like, you, we have to divorce this idea that, like, we need to be the best versions of ourselves. No, we need to be nothing like ourselves and everything like Christ. Do we, do we see that? Because he's the only one who can fulfill what's happening in Isaiah 53. That he goes innocent like a, like a sheep to the slaughter. That there was no guilt found on him that he becomes a guilt offering, that he could bear the inequities of the world. Jesus pays a price that we never, ever, ever could. And if we miss that, we're going to be just like the Jews in Matthew. I don't need a savior. I just need someone to kind of change the way this government works and make it more tax-friendly, more user-friendly, more power-friendly. Put us in charge and everything will be fine. It's like, no, 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 I need a savior. The king thing would be great. And it's not that God doesn't fulfill that promise. It's just later on in the story. Aren't we glad that there's an opportunity for repentance? And then the kingdom, right? I mean, because if they get what they want, boom, it's done. All Jesus payment on the cross never happened. Like, I don't really think they know what they're asking for. And so when you read this, there's just kind of this tension, like, come Lord now, because The world is a mess, but at the same time, God, we're not done. There's still work to be done. People need to know that there's a way to be at peace with you through your son, Jesus. And we need to offer that to all people until he comes back. But if we have a diminished view of sin, we're not going to have an urgency to tell that to other people because we don't really think they need to be saved from much either. They just need a few self-help books and a few people who are really bad that they can compare themselves to so they feel better about themselves. And they could feel like, oh, God must love me because I'm not that bad. Look at this guy. When you read Isaiah 53, I mean, look at 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The innocence of Jesus and he opens not his mouth. Do you see the love in there? I mean, Adam's existed all of like, not even a few years, and he's like, God, it's your fault. Look at the wife you gave me, right? Like he's, he's already trying to out people. Jesus takes the sin, opens his mouth not. He's not guilty. He takes it. And what's interesting is, that prophecy is directly fulfilled in the New Testament, isn't it? Like you got anything to say for yourself? Does Jesus say anything? No. Goes to the cross and he takes our sin upon him. He takes the wrath of God. He takes the nails. He takes the pain. Next point is why? Because it was, verse 10, the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord. Now this is hard for some people. Some people use that and they're like, that's divine child abuse. I don't know that I want to compare God's fatherness to Christ, to my parenting to my kids. Does that seem smart to anybody? Yeah, That's what we call in philosophy a category mistake. You don't give a divine being and read created being attributes into him, and you don't take a divine being's attributes and read them into a created being's at, you know attributes. Does that make sense? It was a little wordy, but it's not a one-to-one well, if I wouldn't do it, God would never do it. Do we see the problem with that metaphor analogy? Okay, So it's not child abuse. It's God offering, giving His Son to be a payment for His creation. Philippians tells us that Jesus laid down His life on His own accord. He gives it of His own accord. So the Father sends the Son. The Son's being obedient. But also, He's not saying Father, why are you doing this to me? You're so mean. And God's like, shut up. I told you to go on the cross, right? Like, that's not what you see, is it? I'm not trying to be funny, but I'm just trying to help you like think through this. People make conclusions and they're like, I don't like the cross. It's bloody. I don't like the violence. Well, if Jesus doesn't pay for the sin, who does? Is it a better gospel that we have to pay for our own sin? And then God tells us, guess what? You'll never pay enough, so nobody goes to heaven. Is that better news? But it makes the cross less gory. I mean, how do you get around Isaiah 53? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? But if you divorce, Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and shall bruise his heel. That's God's answer to sin after sin enters the world. He's like, Look, you guys fell, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Jesus does that. He doesn't sin in any way. He perfectly upholds everything that God asks him, becoming our representative, becoming, verse 12, our intercession, our intercessor, our high priest. Keep working our way through this text, Uh, the rest of verse 10. It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That sure sounds like a payment for sin, doesn't it? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So by the servant, we get accounted righteous, right standing with God. So whose work makes us right with God? Christ. That's what it says, isn't it? It's not rocket science, people, right? Christ makes us whole. There's nothing we can do other than accepting his work on the cross to be on our behalf. That's good news, isn't it? That someone does it for us when we can't. Now, here's the thing I want you to catch too. People don't like this, but we have to, we can only go as far as the text goes. Okay, uh, keep coming down here in verse twelve. It says, "Yet he bore the sins of what does it say? You guys tell me. Many. Does it say everyone? No." If Jesus paid for every sin ever, wouldn't that mean everyone goes to heaven? Wouldn't it? I'm just, I'm just asking a question. That's a straightforward thing, isn't it? Well, people don't like that. Well, if every sin's paid for and everyone goes to heaven, then what is the point of morality? Just do whatever you want. It's paid for. That's anarchy, isn't it? You guys are looking at me really confused. Either I'm confused or you guys are asleep. Like, this isn't hard. If everyone goes to heaven, nothing matters. Is that true? You just do whatever you want. That's why the passage is very clear. Not everyone's sins are paid for. That's kind of a big deal, isn't it? So to be counted righteous as one who's had their sins paid for, whoo! It's a big deal, isn't it? Now, we can argue about who gets to go and how and all of that. That's not this sermon. The point is that some are paid for, and that's better news than none are paid for. Man, you guys are rough this morning. That's great news, isn't it? That is great news. Some is better than none. I'm pretty sure they still teach that in schools, don't they? Right? Some is better than None. If you're a part of the sum, you need to be really excited because you could never be a part of the sum without Christ. That's the point of the passage. But if we don't see ourselves as sinners, then we don't need Jesus. And this is what Jesus spends his time trying to show them. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. What's interesting in the Gospels, you know who the people who get it the best are the non-religious people. They're like, I'm messed up and I need, I need help. And Jesus is like, yeah, you need me. You need living water. The external things you're trying to use to, turn, to fix your internal problems don't work. Money, power, dating, none of it works. Politics, you need Christ. And the ones who divorce themselves from this kind of religious superiority, are like, yes, I need you, you'll love me. I can have you now. I'll take you. And it takes Jesus going to the cross. All of a sudden, you could see the the disciples are on this trajectory, right? And they're always trying to get their sword. And they're telling Jesus he can't go to the cross. And all of a sudden, he goes to the cross and they run. They scatter. Well, then he's resurrected and they're like, oh, you are the king. Kind of thought we picked the wrong guy. Right? But it dawns on them, wow, you came to pay for our, our sins paid for. And all of a sudden, they launch the church out of that acknowledgement. But it's a real struggle, isn't it? I mean, you're going to see in Matthew, it's a real struggle. They don't get it. They don't understand it. And it's largely because if you miss Isaiah 53, the, law, the purpose of the law was to show them you can't fulfill it. You can't. No matter how hard you try, you won't be perfect. And if you break one element of it, you've broken all of it. You need help. You need a savior. You need a payment, so that when Jesus comes, it's like boom—the payment's here. Should have been a huge celebration, huh? Well, what gets in the way? Fixating on external means to fix spiritual problems. Money does not fix our sinfulness. Other people does not fix our sinfulness. All right, and whatever you want to say. Nothing fixes our spiritual deadness except Christ. Only he can make us alive. And so if we miss that, we'll miss Jesus just the same way the Jews did in Matthew. And we don't want to do that, do we? Okay. So part of what our solution has to be is a commitment to read great texts like Isaiah 53 and realize he carried my sorrows. He bore my griefs. He took the wrath of God. He was crushed by the Lord so that I wouldn't have to be. If that doesn't create a gratefulness inside of you, I don't know what will. But that has to be what drives us. The Christian life is, is living in response to Isaiah 53. You see that? It's a forever response to you paid for me. You bore the wrath of God. You did what I could not. Because of you, I have eternal life. And so, if that means the world falls apart, you live in China, North Korea, South Korea, none of that matters if you know you're going to heaven. Is that true? Like, do you see you have the biggest problem solved? Your sin is paid for. Everything you need, you have in Christ. You see, but the problem we, we wrestle with is yeah, we, Christ is cool, but I, but I need all these other things. He's not enough. That's the problem in the garden, isn't it? God said no. And they're like, but wait, I want to do it. I feel like I should be able to do it. And that's all throughout the Old Testament. And she's like, no, if you just, you have me, I pay for your sins. That has to be enough, doesn't it? Because if not, we're going to keep chasing things that don't work and that hurt. And we're going to waste and diminish the gift of what Christ does on the cross. Last quote, and then we'll get into some questions. It says that sin is our first language. Because of this, we need additional help to see it. Hate it, repent it, fight it, flee from it. Indeed, the Christian's daily task is to hate your sin without hating yourself and drive a hundred fresh nails into your indwelling sin every day. See, we don't fight sin because we need to get saved. You are saved because of Christ. You fight sin because it's paid for, and it gets in the way of your relationship with the one who paid for it. Don't you want that relationship to be as pure and great as possible? Okay, the seven of us, we're going to work really hard, because we love that relationship. The rest of you are still kind of figuring it out. You're not sure how much you love the relationship. Hopefully you get there, because there's nothing better than loving and following Jesus. And that's why we fight we fight sin so that relationship is whole that there's no barrier there's no there's nothing between us you're saved it's paid for it's done that's good that's great But the reason we don't sin is because we're grateful for what he's already paid for for what he's already done Do you see the freedom in that That so there's not a need to be perfect but there should be a desire for perfect because that's who Christ is and that's who we want to be like, isn't it? It changes everything when, when the cross drives our motivations versus seeing the cross as like a means to get something we want, rather than as an accomplishment that drives every motivation we have. Some questions. How can Isaiah 53 help you remember your sin? Isaiah 53 is one of the most clear passages that we're sinful, And Christ took our place. It's a passage that needs to refresh our minds over and over and over again. Two, why do we diminish the depth of our sinfulness? If you ever hear people talk about sin, they always follow the phrase with, well, I'm not that bad. Is that the requirement to get into heaven? And who defines not that bad? Ask a kid what not that bad is compared to your definition of not that bad. They'll be different just like ours and God's would be different. It'd be very different. See, when you know Christ has paid for your sin, you can own, I'm a sinner and it's bad. Do do we realize if, if we were to just be locked in a room and not be able to go out and do things, we would still be condemned in our sin because of our thoughts? Our thoughts condemn us more than we're willing to admit. I mean, driving home from church, half of you are going to be like, oh, this is what he was talking about. I want to kill that guy, right? Like, boom, it's there. It's quick. It doesn't, it's in our minds and in our hearts. The guilt, the envy, the jealousy, the anger, the rage, the insecurity. It's there, isn't it? Just in that alone, the sinfulness reigns. And it's seeing this as saying that Jesus is the only thing that can solve that, take that, Fix that. Three. What does Isaiah fifty three teach us about Jesus? Hopefully, it teaches us that he might not physically look the part, but we don't need the physical. We need the spiritual, and spiritually, he meets every need. He was perfect. He was perfect. An interesting question to think is what if Jesus were to come today? How would you envision him? Like, is he in a Prius with like you know, like what is he doing? Like, is he is he walking? Is he you know? It's like, none of that actually matters because his appearance isn't what saves us. It's what he does, his work on the cross that saves us. Four, how can Isaiah 53 help us defend our faith? Again, one of the most clear passages about Jesus as the payment of our sin is him bearing the wrath of God, God's will to crush him, him as the intercessor, him paying for our transgressions, the sin of many, not all, Beautiful text, right? Okay. It's a text you need to be familiar with as a Christian. And five. Why do we look for worldly standards to comfort us, and how does Isaiah 53 help us not do that? See, this this is the heart problem with Israel. They want a physical king so they could feel comfort. This is what's going on in Isaiah. They don't want the Assyrians to take their land. They're afraid. From the beginning, God shown, like, hey, I can beat the Philistines. I can beat the, I can, I will win. It's just gonna be done in a way that you don't like. It's gonna be done in a way that doesn't, isn't conducive to what you would want of a king or an army or victory. You read Isaiah 53 and it reminds us God might not do things the way we want, He might not do the things we want but he did send his son to save us and he is trustworthy when we don't understand what is going on. Isaiah 53 drives home. He is worthy of our trust, affection, and worship, even in the hardest of moments. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. Uh, We thank you for Isaiah 53. Just the clear nature of what your son did on the cross. And it's our prayer that we would never forget all that has been done for us, all that Christ did. And that we would come to this text in deep celebration, realizing that because of Christ, we do not have to bear your wrath. We don't have to be eternally separated from you because of him. And so it's our deep prayer that we would be forever grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, uh, great communion passage, right? As you think through, uh, what are the sins that I've committed that Christ paid for? Uh, so at LBC, when we, we take communion two times a month, um, we don't believe it's an act of salvation. It doesn't save you. It is symbolic. Um, but it is something that we take serious, that it's something for believers who believe Isaiah 53 that Jesus did pay for them in this way. He's their substitute. He is their payment for sin. He's the reason they go to heaven because of his work. And so we ask if you're not a Christian that you would just uh, not partake, but maybe focus on prayer, open a Bible in front of you, look at the words we're going to sing. But part of what we're told in the New Testament is that when we gather, that we would remember Christ in this way. We would remember Isaiah 53. So uh, as you think through that, just a couple things to remember. Open the bread first. Otherwise, uh, if you open the juice and then you try to get the bread, sometimes you spill it on yourselves, right? So bread first, then juice, and it is gluten-free if you were wondering or have an allergy. So it's an important thing, right? Uh, as it comes to communion, a good thing to think through is what particular, like to think through the sin, what sin do I commit? What are sins that, that, like, in my mind, you know, sins of my mind, sins of my heart that nobody knows about? And confess those to the Lord. Make the connection that those sins are a part of what, why Christ took the wrath of God for you. Yeah, communion should always kind of have this trajectory of, of, of mourning and almost crying because you see your sinfulness and that you fall short and you don't meet God's standard and that there's no way you could be with him. And that's the mourning. And then it moves to celebration, that, that your sin is paid for. You are loved, you are his, and you will be with him forever. So you move from mourning to celebrating. Uh, and in this time, when after I pray, you're gonna be able to take it on your own. And then after a while, uh, Matt will lead us in some worship, some celebration, really, that Jesus did pay for our sin. Uh, but as you read through Isaiah 53, don't just repent of, you know, anger or, or uh, you know, hatred or immorality. You know, we need to repent that we don't celebrate Christ. That's a sin, isn't it? To be indifferent, to not love Him with all our heart, soul, and mind. We don't love Him enough. We don't cherish Him that we can read through Isaiah 53 and have our eyes glossed over and kind of like, ah, that's cool. What's for lunch? Like how, how? No. May that never be us. We don't want that to be us, do we? No. We want to read Isaiah 53 and be like, thank you, Jesus. And repent that we don't react in the way we should react. We don't have the gratefulness that we should have. We don't have the affection. We don't have I don't know kind of the right word I'm looking for. Is the right response that we should. And then, as you end that prayer, you have a chance to respond and sing, and just be grateful and celebrate the work of Jesus, and that you're going to leave this building a forgiven sinner, child of God, citizen of heaven. And no matter who cuts you off or makes your day bad when you leave here, nothing changes that status. That's great news, isn't it? Okay, just mean Matt. It's great news, Matt. Okay? We're gonna sing like it. That's my point. We're gonna sing like it. Because at the end of communion, you should be ready to celebrate. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you uh, for the work of Christ. Uh, and I pray that, that our church really would have grateful hearts that look at their sin and go, there's no way I could do what Christ did, there's no way I could bear the wrath of God. There's no way I could be the perfect payment to satisfy the wrath of God. That there's no way I would get to be with God, the creator, father, all eternity, without the work of the son. That we would just go before you and confess sin and then thank you profusely for forgiving that sin, for paying for that sin. And then to sing greatly in remembrance of that payment. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.